of the Telco Talks podcast series, focusing on topical issues in the telecommunications industry. I'm Dipti Govind, a technical accounting manager in the PwC South African practice, and I will be your host. Our aim is to keep you up to date on key accounting issues in the telecommunications industry. Joining me in the studio today is Johan van Hestien, a technical accounting partner specializing in the telecommunications industry in our PwC South African practice. Welcome to the podcast studio, Johan. Hi, Dipti. It's nice to be with you in the studio and, and thanks for having me. So in our last podcast on Leaster, we discussed the considerations and challenges in determining the lease term under IFRS 16. The Interpretations Committee meeting held in November last year finalised an agenda decision relating to the impact of penalties in determining the lease term, which has been a much debated issue. Could you perhaps give our audience some background? Yes, Dipti, I can, I can certainly do that. As you mentioned, this is a topic that has been discussed at length. And the issue really addresses how to apply apply the term or notion of of a penalty in IFRS 16, which states that a lease contract is no longer enforceable when the lessee or the lessor each have a right to terminate the lease with no more than an insignificant penalty. And the question was really, is the term penalty meant to apply narrowly to the payment of penalties stipulated in the lease contract, or is it a concept expected to look at the broader economics, really considering economic incentives and disincentives for both of the contracting parties. Now, the effect decision in, in November also introduced the concept of a cancelable lease and a renewable lease, which, which is where issues over the determining over determining the enforceable period often occur. Now, a cancelable lease is one that does not specify a particular contractual term, but continues indefinitely until either party to the contract gives notice to terminate, and it includes a notice period. For example, let's say, 12 months, and it does not imp- oblige either party to make a payment on termination. On the other hand, a renewable lease specifies an initial period, and it renews indefinitely at the end of the initial lease period, unless terminated by either of the parties to the contract. Thank you for that background, Johan. Given this issue, where did the Interpretations Committee eventually get to on this decision? Dipti, I think the first important point is just to just to re- to, to remind our listeners that, that IFRS 16 does not define a penalty as such. And the Interpretations Committee concluded that in assessing the, assessing the no more than in, an insignificant penalty reference in the standard and in determining the enforceable period of the lease, an entity should consider the broader economics of the contract and not only the contractual termination payments. Now, if either party will incur more than an insignificant penalty from terminating, including these economic penalties, the contract is enforceable beyond the date on which the contract can be terminated by, by that party. An entity should, should consider whether each of the parties have a right to terminate the contract without permission from the other party with no more than an insignificant penalty. And in applying IFRS 16, a lease is no longer enforceable only when both parties have, have such a right. Now, if an entity concludes that the contract is enforceable beyond the notice period of a cancelable lease, or the initial period of a renewable lease, and you remember those are the two terms that I actually referred to a bit bit earlier, it would need to assess whether the lessee is reasonably certain not to exercise the option to terminate the lease. 
And Dipti, perhaps an additional point to mention is that the enforceable period really sets the maximum lease term, while the non-cancellable period is the minimum lease term. And sometimes, and more often than not, judgment has to be applied in determining the lease term, which may lie somewhere between, between these two points. I understand that there was another question addressed by the IFRIC at the same time in the context of non-removable leasehold improvements. Could you perhaps explain this issue and the thought process around this? Certainly, Dipti. There were in fact two aspects that were discussed by the IFRIC. The first one being the useful life of non-removable leasehold improvements and the second one being the interaction between the lease term on the one hand and the useful life of leasehold improvements on the other. Now, starting with the first one, an entity applies the Property Plant and Equipment Standard, or IS-16, to determine the useful life of non-removable leasehold improvements. In determining the useful life, legal or similar limits on the use of the asset, such as the expiry date of related leases, should be considered. Now, if the lease term of the related lease is shorter than the economic life of those leasehold improvements, the entity considers whether it expects to use the leasehold improvements beyond that lease term. And if the entity does not expect to use the leasehold improvements beyond that lease term of the related lease, then of course it includes that the, concludes that the useful life of the non-removable leasehold improvements is the same as the lease term. And perhaps, Dipti, just to mention, the, the committee actually observed that an entity might often reach this conclusion for leasehold improvements that the entity will use and benefit from only for as long as it uses the underlying asset in the lease. That's interesting. So how does this then interact with the lease term? As we discussed a bit earlier, uh, when determining the lease term and the enforceable period of the lease, it's important to consider the broader economics and and all relevant facts and circumstances that create an economic incentive or disincentive for the lessee, which includes the significant, significant leasehold improvements. Now, there might be circumstances where the useful life of the non-removable leasehold improvement exceeds the assessed lease term, For example, where where management, for instance, will dismantle and redeploy the leasehold improvement at the end of the lease term. Therefore, it might be possible based on the specific facts and circumstances for the leasehold improvements to have a useful life which is longer than the lease term. Thanks, Johan, for that feedback on the November agenda decision. Another aspect of accounting which is commonly found in the telco space are asset retirement obligations. Before we get into the accounting considerations, please could you elaborate on what asset retirement obligations are? Tipti, well, I think simply put, um, you know, an asset retirement obligation would, would arise where an operator constructs or places, for example, a cell tower on leased land, where the operator might have an obligation to remove the cell tower and restore the land to its original condition at the end of the lease. So moving on to the accounting implications, what might that be for this restoration obligation? Dipti, we back in IFRS 16. And IFRS 16 states that the cost of restoring the underlying asset to its original condition at the end of the lease is, is in fact included in the cost of the right of use asset. And this implies that the, that the asset retirement obligation asset or the ARO asset is recognized at the same time as the restoration provision and forms part of the right of use asset for the leasehold land. With, importantly, its useful life being the same and not exceeding the lease term. Considering IAS 16, which is the Property, Plant and Equipment Standard, 
Does it not state that the cost of an item of PPE includes an estimate of the costs of dismantling and restoring the site on which it is located? There seems to be quite a contrast there, as this suggests that the Asset Retirement Obligation Asset, or ARO Asset, forms part of the cost of the equipment which is constructed on the leasehold land, and it should have the same useful life as that equipment. Yes, Dipti, that observation is right on the money. There is indeed a contrast between IFRA 16 and I-16 in this regard. And what is important in determining the treatment of the asset retirement obligation is really to consider what gave rise to this obligation. This is, you know, does it arise from the lease contract or does it actually arise from the underlying asset? And if the obligation arises as a, as a result of the land lease, the asset retirement obligation should logically form part of the right of use asset. And on the other hand, if the obligation arises from laws or regulations, in fact, it actually has nothing to do with the lease and, and it should attach to the cell tower itself. And uh, these conclusions reached will therefore really depend on the facts and circumstances specific to each lease arrangement. Johan, thank you for joining us in this podcast for yet another interesting discussion on much debated IFRS 16 issues. The new standard has clearly kept everyone on their toes even a year into implementation. Yes, Dipti, indeed it has. Um, you know, perhaps a couple of, of parting thoughts from my side. I think firstly, it's fundamental that entities understand the issues and, and the impact of these agenda decisions on their accounting, as it's likely to have significant business implications. And then, you know, when we talk about specific issues such as the lease term and the useful life of, of leasehold improvements, more often than not, these are areas that require some judgment and entities should carefully consider explaining, explaining these and how they've actually applied these as part of the critical judgments and estimates in, in their respective financial statements. Definitely agree with you on that one, Johan. And an important takeaway is to stay up to date with updates from the IFRIC. Stay tuned for the next podcast, which plans on covering the interaction between IFRS 16 and IS 36 impairments. program was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers Inc. Its content is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.